Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumwatt Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumwatt or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumwatt.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning and welcome to Grumlaw Church. Today we are heading into part two of a series that we began last week titled The Gift, where as we eagerly anticipate celebrating the birth of our Savior, the birth of your Savior, uh, we're taking a look at the three gifts presented to Jesus by the wise men shortly after his birth. Now, now what were those three gifts? Any of you remember, right? Gold, frankincense, and, and myrrh. The three gifts that, as we began to explore last week, are rich with symbolism and specifically foreshadow images that, that Jesus would come to represent. So, so last week, we began with, with frankincense, which represents Jesus as our, our high priest. Or, or as I admitted last week, as a child, it was always Frankenstein, and I had this really weird imagery of like the wise men, and like there's Frankenstein just kind of like getting in on their party. But anyway, Jesus, the high priest, who would get off of his throne and offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice for our sin problem, satisfying the justice of God once and for all, extending God's mercy once and for all. Our high priest who doesn't look at us in judgment or even apathy, but our savior who understands and and cares, who who sympathizes and longs to enter into whatever you're walking through with you. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be timid. Come boldly to your heavenly father. Your savior, Jesus, paved that path for you. That, by the way, is a very, very condensed version of what we spoke about last week. And so if you are not here for part one, you can go and catch yourself up at grumlaw.com slash messages, or you can find us in a Grumlaw church wherever it is that you grab those podcasts. Now, as we began to explore the, the wise men and the gifts they would present, we jumped into a text called Matthew last week, which is one of those four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus. And there we will return to chapter two this morning. It says, when they saw the star, they being the wise men, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and and myrrh. So so again, last week we spoke about frankincense, which as also noted last week is making a bit of a comeback due to the essential oil crowd. This week we're going to be talking about myrrh. Now, now, like the other two gifts, not only was myrrh valuable and useful back at this point in history, but, but it again, was, it was rich with symbolism. Myrrh is a valuable gum-like substance that's actually mentioned 17 different times throughout this book that we call the Bible. Now, now one of those times you might actually recall when it was used as a, as a painkiller, mixed with wine and then offered to Jesus as he hung on the cross, a, a drink that he would actually reject, opting instead to bear the full weight and the full pain of, of our sins. More commonly, though, myrrh was used as an ingredient to embalm the dead, which is why most biblical scholars agree that, that myrrh represents Jesus, our suffering servant, or, or the Lamb of God that the Lamb of God who was born to die for the forgiveness of, of our sins. And to explore this, we're going to take a look at what is easily my favorite chapter of Scripture in the entire Bible, a prophetic passage that we find in Isaiah, uh, a prophet who would point to Jesus as our suffering servant. Now, now, to help us appreciate this chapter of Scripture, I, I want to paint a little scenario for you. Uh, if I predicted today, on December the 11th, which two teams would be in the Super Bowl this upcoming February, that that would be mildly impressive, right? But, but not unthinkable, 
because you know we are better than halfway through the NFL season at this point. We have a pretty decent picture of who is the better teams and who are the worst teams, right? And I could guess that, but honestly, it would be not unthinkable, and you might even say, well, that's just kind of a lucky guess. But if I predicted the exact score of the Super Bowl with those two exact teams, that that would probably grab most of your attention. If I did that exact same thing for next year, again, for 2024's Super Bowl, I predicted what two teams would make it into that Super Bowl and the exact score for that game, that, that would be even more impressive. Borderline spooky, and I think we'd probably see higher attendance around here from the sports gambling community. But but let's just say I, I did this for the Super Bowl, and again, I'm making a lot of assumptions that there would be a Super Bowl this far down the road, but let's just say the world has some semblance of what it looks like today. If I did this for the Super Bowl 700 years from now, I predicted which two teams would be in it and the exact score, that, that would not just be impressive, that would be prophetic. Enter Isaiah. He predicted, he prophesied 700 years before the birth of Jesus a very detailed account of what the suffering servant, of what Jesus would endure on our behalf. Now, before we go there, I'm going to show us our problem. And yes, every single one of us, we all have a problem. And then I'm going to show us what Jesus endured, the price that he paid to solve that problem, and in turn, offer each of us eternal life. Now, I'd like to think of us around here as a, as a church, as a refreshingly honest community. You might call it sometimes blunt. I call it stating it plainly. We don't shy away from talking about this quite often around here. And the reason being, I'm sort of thinking by virtue of the fact that, that, that you're sitting right now, that you decided to tune into this today, that there was something inside of you already hinting that this might be the case. Uh, Isaiah points to this problem, his words in Isaiah chapter 53. He says, all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our, our own. Now, now, just in case you're, you're not clear on this, uh, Isaiah is not meaning for this to be a compliment. <laughs> when he refers to us human beings as sheep right here, he, he's telling us that we are not the sharpest tools in the shed. See, you can train a lot of different animals, right? A lot of you, you have dogs. You can train dogs. You can train horses. You can train birds. I mean, shoot, you can even train cats. But, but good luck training a, a sheep. In fact, sheep are kind of known for three characteristics in particular, that they are weak, they are witless, and they are wayward. One, they're weak. They are completely defenseless if a predator approaches. They don't have any fighting techniques. They don't have fangs. They don't attack if danger approaches. It's why those shepherds had to be constantly present around the sheep both day and night. They literally don't have a single defense mechanism. When a predator approaches, they actually huddle together as a sort of buffet for the approaching carnivore. They're also witless. They don't think for themselves. They'll follow each other right into danger. In fact, there's a story, uh, and you might recall this in 2005, it happened in Turkey, where 1,500 different sheep walked right off of a cliff. Now, you would think after like the first three, four, maybe even the first hundred, the other ones would like take a step back and be like, okay, this is, this is not a good idea. But every single one of those 1,500 sheep, they walked right off of the cliff, right into their impending pain and, and death. They're also, they're, they're wayward. They wander. They do terribly on their own. They eat too much. They rest too much. They're a very anxious animal. Left to their own devices, they always spell their own demise. 
So again, when, when Isaiah goes out of his way to refer to you and I as, as sheep, that's it's not a compliment. We tend to, left to our own devices, wander away from God's path, and we choose that path that, that will ultimately undermine you and usually other people that, that you would purport to care about. All of us, like sheep, we've strayed away. We, we have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. But remember, this text was, again, written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And you, by the way, if you've ever been hurt, betrayed, left out, misunderstood, Jesus very much understands you. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. This church is what Jesus would endure for, for you. But perhaps you kind of tuned in here today with a faint curiosity. Perhaps even a question lingering in the back of your mind. Why, why should I follow Jesus? See, see, when you begin to understand the magnitude of Jesus' suffering and the depth of his love, you will not approach him casually. I'll go to church when I feel like it. I'll pray those kind of quick token prayers before meals. I'll, I'll give when, when the stars sort of align. No, 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 no. When you understand what Jesus did for you, what your, what your suffering servant endured for you, the declaration of divine love, the, the only response is to completely surrender to him, to, to, to not merely believe, but, but, but follow Jesus, our, our suffering servant, as, as he awaited his impending torture and death in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he himself would admit, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Uh, under such extreme shock and trauma, he would experience what medical professionals would come to refer to as hemosiderosis, where his capillaries burst and, and, and you end up leaking blood into your sweat pores. You, you quite literally sweat blood. He would be arrested under false accusations. He would then be unfairly tried with, with the mob mentality prevailing, sentenced to, to death on a cross. He, he would then be stripped naked, adding to his public humiliation. A, a crown of thorns, one to two inches in length, wedged into his head and, and therefore into his skull. S spit on, slapped, whipped, beaten struck on the head repeatedly to drive those thorns even deeper. Isaiah gives us this brutal detail that, that his beard was literally like manually ripped out, so brutally tortured and beaten with so much blood camouflaging his appearance that, that he was completely unrecognizable. He'd be forced to carry his cross, his own death instrument, weighing well over 100 pounds, over 650 yards down the path known as the way of suffering. Uh, upon his arrival to Golgotha, he, he would have seven-inch nails driven through his wrists and his feet, hung on a Roman instrument of torture reserved for the worst of the worst. There he hung, our Savior, naked in the heat of the day, fighting for every breath. 
it, it wouldn't take much for your shoulders to become dislocated. And, and honestly, church, that's not the worst of it. Now, the worst part was still to come as the innocent one bore the sins of the guilty ones, you and I. Jesus would become everything vile, everything filthy, everything demonic, everything sinful, and God in his righteousness, in his holiness, he who cannot look upon sin, he, he turned away. The intimate fellowship that Jesus had always known with his father was now gone. And in the most agonizing moment that this world has ever known, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned from me? Why am I not experiencing that intimacy in this moment? They would offer him that, that wine mixed with the myrrh, the very substance that they would soon embalm him with. And he refuses, committing to finishing what, what he set out to do. And would then breathe his last. Freely giving his life for the forgiveness of sins. Isaiah would prophesy this 700 years in advance. Who this baby lying in the manger would become. Our suffering servant. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, specifically Joseph of Arimathea, his grave. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. We touched on this last week. What is it that makes Christianity different from, from all other major faith traditions, from Islam, Buddhism, New Age? It's the bloody death of an innocent victim. The bloody death of, of our innocent Savior. God would, would willingly become flesh and then would be pierced for our rebellion crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be made whole. By the stripes that he bore on his back, we may be healed. When that gift of myrrh was presented to, to baby Jesus, it was foreshadowing what was to come. The suffering servant, the lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. And Jesus himself, he knew this. In Luke's text, he, he prophesied of himself, the Son of Man, a title that he would often refer to himself as, the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He'll be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. Then he said to the crowd, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. See, notice what, what Jesus didn't say there. He didn't say, feel convicted, say a quick prayer at church, then go on, kind of keep living the life that, that you want to live. But don't worry, you'll be all good. Eventually, you'll be chilling with Jesus for all eternity. No, no, no. He said, you deny yourself. Reject what comes natural to you. Reject your way of doing things. You die to you. You die to yourself. That, that, that's what it means when he says, take up your cross. Die to yourself. Then come, follow me. 
Church, it, it's, it's not a hobby. It's not an add-on. It's God becoming flesh. Jesus inheriting not the sin nature of an earthly father like you and I, but the divine nature of our heavenly father. But then willingly taking your sin, my sin, on his shoulders so that you and I might have the opportunity to experience eternal life, true life, a reunification with our, with our heavenly father. And church, when you begin to understand that, it overwhelms. It consumes your life. He endured all of that for, for you and, and I, for, for our lives, for your lustfulness, for your hypocrisy, for your greed, for your anger, for your wickedness, for your self-centeredness. God's son for, for your sin. Jesus, this child that we we celebrate this time of the year. He was, he was born to die. That's why it's called the gospel. It, it is good news beyond measure that, that our God would do that for us, that, that he would go to those lengths to win us back. And three days after being put in that grave, he, he would rise again and thus conquering your sin my sin, death. Church, I don't follow Jesus because I have to. I, I follow that suffering servant because of who he is, who he proved himself to be. I, I choose to give him my, my whole life. This is a time of year that, that is often marked by gratitude. We attempt to extend gratitude to loved ones, to friends, to family members. But, but I want to ask us as we tie a bow on this this morning, when is the last time that you just went humbly before your Savior and told him, thank you? Or where you sat at his feet and you just said, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for becoming flesh. Thank you for enduring all that was the pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, all the pain as you hung on that cross. Thank you for taking the weight of my sin on your shoulders. Thank you for becoming everything that is vile, everything that is corrupt, everything that is sinful, all of that that exists inside of me so that I might have the opportunity to experience eternal life, to experience true life. And so before you tune away right now, I, I, I want to just pause and Ask each of us to, to seize this opportunity to wherever you're watching from right now. Maybe you literally fall on your knees. Maybe you've never done that before. You put yourself in a posture that reflects where your heart is at right now. And you just fall at the feet of your suffering servant and just say, thank you.